All right, so we're back. Let's talk about this story right here. All right, <clears throat> Jeffrey Epstein's brother released a secret autopsy photos proving Epstein didn't kill himself. Live on Hard Talk Radio, live in 4K. Jeffrey Epstein's brother has released secret photos from the Jeffrey Epstein autopsy, which in his words proved the official narrative about his brother's death is not true and that the officials are covering up his murder. Notorious pedophile's brother explained why he believes Jeffrey Epstein was murdered by those whose secrets he was keeping, presenting previous unseen images from the autopsy to support his case in an episode of the Megyn Kelly show on Friday. And uh, let's uh, take a look. Let me give you the floor to just walk us through. Give us the, give us the, you know, the elevator pitch on why you do not believe your brother killed himself. Well, let me first start off by saying that when I found out that he was dead, uh, I, I heard it on CNN. So the government didn't notify me as they've claimed in their report. I heard it on television. And at first I just assumed that, well, I had no reason to doubt it and that he decided to kill himself. Uh, so I respected that, I expect, I respected that as his decision. He didn't have any children. Uh, our parents are gone. He would know he didn't have to worry about me. He had no other close you know, relatives. So I just assumed that that was the case. But then uh, the next day, they performed the autopsy. And just as a precaution, I had uh, we'd hired Dr. Michael Barden to witness the autopsy, which I have the right to do. And the city pathologist, Dr. Roman, and Dr. Barden came out of the autopsy saying that they could not call this a suicide because it looked too much like a homicide. And you know, make it clear that Dr. there's nobody who has more experience with prison deaths than Dr. Barden. And he said he's never seen these results, these like three broken bones in Jeffrey's neck from a suicidal hanging like this. So then the questions became, uh, you know, if he didn't commit suicide, then he was killed. And then who killed him? How how was it done? And so these questions started coming up. And then uh, Attorney General Barr came out publicly and, and said a real asinine statement. He said that he saw he personally saw the videotape of the camera that was on outside of the tier where you could see the tier door. Explain tier. Oh, that's the, the floor where Jeff's cell was. You go into a door and it's a corridor with four cells on either side of that corridor. And at the far end of that corridor, you, there's a camera that faces towards the door. So anything that takes place on that tier, you know, outside of the cells could be viewed by that camera. Well, miraculously, that camera was not functioning that night. But the camera outside of the tier, which showed the door, and it's also that showed that the guards were not doing their jobs, they were surfing the net or napping, that camera was working. So Bill Barr referred to that camera, saying that he saw that nobody went in or out of the tier, so that convinced him it was a suicide. And when I heard him make that statement, I thought he's either the, the dumbest guy on the planet or he's covering something up because for two reasons. One, to presume that somebody could get to that door, go in undetected, you know, 
kill somebody and go out and leave undetected is ridiculous because there are six levels of security before you get to that tier. This was the maximum security place in the prison. So that didn't make any sense. And then when he said he personally saw the videotape, watched the videotape, I thought, but this is the Attorney General of the United States. Could I see him sitting by a monitor watching a night's worth of videotape to see that nobody went in or out? Couldn't he have people in his office watch the videotape and just say nobody went in or out? So when I heard he that he personally watched the videotape and he concluded that it was a suicide because nobody went in or out, I said, this is bullshit, if I'm allowed to say that on air. You are, you know, yeah. Because there were, yeah, there were, there were, I think, 11 other prisoners on that tier in the cells that could have killed him. Because I heard early on in, in my investigations, I heard through somebody from a kind of reliable source that cell doors were left unlocked. So if cell doors were left unlocked, I don't know how many or which ones, but somebody could have gone out, killed him, went back into his cell, and that's how it was done. Mm-hmm. So I've been trying to find out who were the 11 prisoners on that ward. Because if Jeff, if Jeff was killed, it had to be by one of them. So who are they? How long were they there for? And where are they today? Can't get answers to any of them. Well, who, so, from whom are you trying to get those answers? Well, from the government. We've every Me and other media people have been putting out requests for this kind of information. Also, we know that the camera outside of the tier was functioning because that's the one Bill Barr referred to. We can't get the footage, it's been asked a number of times, of when they took Jeff off of that tier, when they took his body off of that tier and brought him to the infirmary, you know, where's the footage from that period of time? That doesn't Do they explain why they won't release that to you and why they won't release the prisoner names to you? No, but when I did sit down with Justice Department people a few months after the death, all I got from them for every question I asked was after a thorough investigation, we determined it was a suicide. Mm -hmm. That was the answer I got to every question. It's like when somebody pleads the fifth, you know, to 400 questions with the same answer. That's what it was like. Every question after thorough. Now, what the question becomes, what thorough investigation? You know, like the EMTs that responded to the call that you, you saw them in the newspaper pictures of them wheeling Jeff out, you know, they would never question. And they themselves found that extremely odd mm. because they've been involved with other high profile cases. And they've stated they're always brought in, you know, sat down and questioned about you know what took place. They said on this case, they have not been questioned. The hospital personnel where Jeff was taken were never questioned. And there were so many sort of rules that were violated here. First of all, when they when they found Jeff in his cell dead, he had been dead for at least two hours. We know that from the autopsy result, because the mark that was left in his neck, which you can see in the photograph, for that mark to be embedded in his neck that way and dried like that, he had to be dead for at least two hours. Could have been six hours, but a minimum of two. So. When they found him, he was clearly dead. Okay, it wasn't revivable. He should not have been moved. The medical examiner should have been called. Yeah, that's very. Just, I'm just going to interrupt you one second just to tell the audience we are going to show the picture of the uh, Jeff and the and the mark on his neck that you're referring to. This is the first time anybody's seen this uh, publicly. So keep going, Mark. I'm sorry, I interrupted okay. you. Yes, they should not have moved him because also when they find a dead body. 
no longer being pumped through your system. So it seeps through the tissue. So the lowest parts of your body by the floor turn like purplish. You get a blotchiness. It's called lividity. It's, it's from the blood pooling under the skin. So if they find a dead body, for instance, laying on its stomach, but on the back, you have this purplish blotchy lividity. Well, they know that the body's been moved. It means the person died on their back and was on their back for a while, and then they were moved and turned over. So that's why you're not supposed to move a dead body. Now, if you read the Justice Department report, which only has a like, one page about Jeff's death, they described the way he was hanging. They said that he was in a seated position, and you have to picture this. He was in a seated position with his legs extended out in front of him, and he was hanging you know, from his neck, by the thing around his neck, from the top bunk of the bunk beds. And when they cut him down, his buttocks was about an inch or an inch and a half off the ground. Okay, so if you- Can I just ask that, you, because I've heard you say that before. I don't understand that. If they cut him down, how could he still have been hanging? Well, they said they found him hanging and then they cut him down to, to get him out of there. Right, but why wouldn't his buttocks be on the floor? I, like, why wouldn't he be? Well, because they were saying his buttocks, well, because he was hanging and the, the thing around his neck was holding him off the ground. But in this version, they've cut him down. Well, after he after they found him, he's been dead for a couple of hours, hanging like that. Mm -hmm. So then, but they said when they cut him down, they his his buttocks were off the ground, and then they cut him down, and he he came down the inch and inch and a half. Okay, so when they found him and he was down. hanging, the buttocks were an inch and a half off the ground, and then they cut him Correct. down. Correct. Now I got Correct. it. Correct. Okay, so now if you picture that, and he's been hanging for at least two hours. Like it could have been six hours, but at least two. You would expect to find the lividity, the blood pooling in his buttocks, and especially in the back of his legs, because that was the lowest point, and that's where the blood would settle. But the autopsy photos, I have other autopsy photos, shows that his legs were clear, and his buttocks were clear. There is some lividity on his back. We're looking at some now. We don't, we, we don't see the back of his legs in this photo, but certainly what we can no, see no, of the no, legs does not show any. I photo of his neck. Right, yes, but we the have photographs that. don't show that. And there is some lividity on his back, but uh, if he was only dead for two hours and then they laid him down, that lividity on his back could have come afterwards. So that's not conclusive. But the fact that his legs are clear, even if they laid him down, the blood would not have drained up from his legs into his back unless he was hung upside down. Mm -hmm. You know, So the fact that his legs and buttocks are clear from lividity, it leads doubt to the fact that he was found the way they described. So wait, so no, let's just put a point on it so we so people don't have to figure it out. So what you're saying is you don't believe that he was killed, obviously, in the manner that they're telling us, and that if he had really hanged himself, there would have been lividity underneath his legs and in the buttocks from the way he was found hanging, hanging almost in a seated position just off the ground, and there wasn't any. So is there a working theory of if it were a murder, how this evidence does make sense how there why wasn't there lividity in the in the back of the legs well all right so that's what i'll put for now um tell me what are your thoughts on it on this uh situation with uh jeffrey epstein i'll play a little bit more let me play a little bit more it's because he probably was not hanging the way they say because if, they were, if he was hanging the way they said, there'd be evidence of lividity in his legs and buttocks. Mm -hmm. 
And on that so photo, on that photo you gave us, Mark, is that of the of the autopsy and the you know the the mark around the neck? I'm not an expert in this, but it certainly looks to me. I, I have a hard time as a layperson understanding how a sheet made that mark. Maybe we can put it back up so people can see it. As opposed to, it, it looks almost more like a garrote was used or some sort of rope wire. What did Dr. Right, Biden other, say about that? All right, I'll leave it at that. Okay. All right. <clears throat> so on to the next one. We're going to be talking about... Uh, <clears throat> Chinese migrants coming across the U.S.-Mexican border illegally. China's president, we turn now to a story about the big increase in Chinese migrants coming through the U.S. border down in Mexico. Border Patrol agents arrested more than 24,000 Chinese people for crossing the U.S. southern border illegally over the past year through September. That's more than 10 times higher than the previous year and part of the overall rise in illegal border crossings that has made headlines. Elizabeth Palmer shows us why the Chinese migrants are willing to risk everything for a chance to make it to America. A group of migrants struggle through the rain and mud of the Panamanian jungle toward the U.S. border. Weiwei Wang is one of them. I'm surviving on chocolate bars, he says, and running out of drinking water. He videoed the whole grueling trek undertaken by people from all over the world, including recently a record number from China. Since January, border officials have processed more than 10 times as many Chinese migrants as last year. A surge of people with their hopes crushed by China's weak economy, repression and corruption. The government wanted my family's land, Chen Yixiao explains, and he's got video of what he says are thugs sent to beat them up. At the border, American volunteers help out the new arrivals. Samuel Schultz. We're used to seeing border crossers here, Central Americans, Mexicans, trying to avoid the border patrol. And here we have this giant mass of Asians coming in saying, please arrest me. Where's, where's the guy who's going to arrest me? The route is an open secret from China to Quito in Ecuador, which Chinese can enter without a visa, and then onward with detailed online advice. In this video, for example, a guide shows Quito Airport on Google Maps. If you land at night, he says, don't go outside. Next morning, catch the bus to Tolkien and carry on north. The online cartoons make it look easy. It's not. So it's very, very dangerous. Immigration uh, lawyer Shaoshang Wang represents Chinese migrants in the U.S. They could be killed, they could be raped, or they could be uh, robbed. It's just really, really risky. I keep warning people, don't come this way. The poor rural town of Changla in China's southeast is famous for the number of migrants who've left from here for America. But for most, the price, more than $5,000, is just too high. One local woman who scrapes by selling secondhand textiles told us, my brother and his family left years ago. Of course I want to go too, but wishing won't do it. I need cash. 
On the U.S. border, more and more have found the cash to gamble on a new life, even though Attorney Wang says about 30% will be deported. But... 70% of the people uh, would be allowed to settle down in the U.S. In the meantime, the U.S. economy is, uh, is growing very fast, and a lot of employers uh, need a uh, uh, low-pay employees. So that's a kind of a win-win situation. And so expect, you know, expect uh, U.S. Americans, <coughs> U.S. citizens to face uh, stiff competition because you have migrants not just coming from Spanish countries, but from China uh, legally to to basically make it harder for people who are low-skilled workers who are born here and who will pay, be paid than you, all right? So they're basically cutting you out of the economic market. And you already are have blacks facing racism from Spanish migrants in the workplace, especially in construction, okay, or in warehouses. So imagine the racism you will face from Asians. I'm not trying to be a fear monger. All right. But that is the truth, because in China, they treat blacks very horribly. OK. Throw them throw Africans who are stowaways into shark infested waters, kick them out of their um, apartments. OK. So there's a lot there. Also, the fact that the Chinese government could also be smart and you, you do have uh, Chinese police stations uh, in America, in New York. That was found out a couple of months ago, I think a year ago. All right. You have many of the uh, the Chinese government is buying up a lot of farmland in America. All right. So this is a lot to think about. And blacks are going to get the blunt, the brunt of this. Blacks are going to suffer. All right. Who don't have uh, high skills, high level skills. That is the truth. So let's talk about these 15-minute cities. They're in Australia right now. All right. Despite Australia's newest city set to get a car-free streets. Car-free car free streets. You heard that right. Okay. Okay. Despite the lack of knowledge about the Bradfield project by many Australians, the new S, the NSW government still managed to release a draft master plan with few platitudes about how it will transform the region. Unfortunately, existing regional centers such as Liverpool and Cabletown have been left without the necessary infrastructure to support their growth. The Bradfield Center City Century, which is proposed to be located south of the new airports at Bradgeries Creek and in the backyard of Liverpool, has been described as one of the most significant economic developments in Australia since it was first announced several years ago. And for several years of being presented as a visionary project, the draft master plan has now been released for the public feedback. According to the media release, the draft master plan outlines a framework of development of the 114 Hetra Brad City, Bradfield City Century. It will serve as a regional hub for 
skills development, education, and innovation. It will be situated at the heart of Wednesday's Sydney Aerotropolis. The government claims that the project will create thousands of jobs and is expected to become Australia's premier location for emerging and advanced industries. It would also help Western Sydney to create up to 10,000 new homes. The draft master plan features all the necessary infrastructure to support the region's growth. The project is supported by a $1 billion investment by the NSW government. It will also aim to unlock billions of dollars to private investment through the development of City Century. In the media release, it states that if if approved, the plan will outline a stage-based approach to the development of the city center, which will be located on the doorsteps of the new airport. The new metro line and the Aerotropolis are already underway, but the Bradfield City Center draft master plan is a significant milestone that the NSW government has been waiting for. Despite the lack of planning and the previous government's lack of foresight, the construction of the city century has already started. One of the first projects, major projects that is currently underway is the construction of a new advanced research and manufacturing facility, which is expected to be operated by electronics giant Hitachi. This exhibition is designed to showcase the government's vision for the development of Bradfield. It aims to establish the region as a world-class business location. The planning department anticipates the finalization of the city century's master plan will be carried out by mid-2024, according to Priyukar. The region is currently Australia's third largest regional economy. She believes that the region's future growth will be dependent on the availability of skilled and highly skilled jobs near to where people live. The Bradfield City Century's draft master plan shows how the region's investment will support the growth of Western Sydney. Paul Scully, the Minister for Planning and Public Spaces, stated that the draft master plan is a blueprint that will help Western Sydney become a world-class business location and it will support the region's new airport. It will attract investment, create thousands of jobs, and house thousands of people. This is the major public master plan to be exhibited following their the Aerotropolis pathway. It is important that the community and its stakeholders are involved in the planning process. The construction of the city center is expected to help Western Sydney by creating up to 10,000 new homes in the next few years. Through the draft master plan, the public can participate in planning the process to ensure that the area's future is designed to cater to the needs of its residents and invest residents and visitors. Now that's what they say, right? But this is what's really what the uh, 15 minute cities are really about. All right. Here. Here we are. Fair use. Economic Forum website. They tell you. If you take the time to look through the World Economic Forum website, they tell you time and time again that global corporations are going to govern us and that traditional institutions are no longer required, that artificial intelligence and a one-world technocratic corporate government where we own nothing will give us more equality. And the owning nothing part isn't just limited to humans. It means our countries will also own nothing. They are counting on us to further lose trust in our national governance. In fact, they've been instrumental in weakening our governments and our institutions via manipulation and infiltration 
for decades. So if you have a look at the strategic intelligence maps, I highly recommend this one on global governments, governance, uh, going over to the ones by country. So you'll find on all of the countries on these intelligence maps that they have a section called civic participation. So in Australia, it's actually under the future of democracy in Australia, under civic participation. If you go to Canada, it's under Canada on the international stage, civic participation over here. Uh, United States, it appears under future orientation of government, and it's down here, and it's exactly the same on the UK as well. It's under future orientation of government, civic participation over there. So it says, bottom-up civic participation is flourishing as technology helps bring people together in significant numbers to take direct action and exercise civil disobedience. At the same time, top-down forms of civic participation are also gaining traction as processes like citizens' assemblies, participatory budgeting and referendums are having a significant impact. This is occurring amid a general dilution, a general dilution of hierarchies and a growing tension between the local and the global as digitalization reshuffles the traditional logic of power. And then if you go into shifts in power, which is also on every country's strategic intelligence map, it goes on to say, as trust in traditional institutions declines, other entities are seeking to take their place. Civic participation generally occurs in an always moving ever-changing environment, on one hand, trusting governments and in traditional institutions like political parties, trade unions and organised religion has been declining in many parts of the world. On the other hand, other entities are filling in the resulting gaps. Global corporations have gained greater amounts of power and influence, in particular, the technology companies that are proactively inserting themselves into policy and into political discussions. So as you can see, it's already written. This is their script. This is their plan. They want us to tear it all down so they can build it back. It seems to me that they're counting on us to be triggered into acting like, you know, a footy crowd and not using our discernment and not having an understanding of the bigger agenda so that we fall into some false sense of security of believing that all we have to do is dismantle and dissolve our governments to stop it all. Are we going to fall into their trap? Sad answer to that question is yes, they're going to, because look what happened uh, three years ago. Yeah. So all this like coming together and stuff and we got to fight them. No, that's not going to happen. Control the food supply and you control the people. Let's go into another uh, talking about Canada right now. We're going to talk. We're going to see how uh, they're implementing the 15-minute city in Canada now. Having a uh, town meeting and they're talking about it. towns and the concept there if people haven't heard of it is that 
we would be expected to live within 15, a 15-minute 15 walk or bike ride of where we live. And um, towns would be uh, divided into districts, and the borders of those districts would be the borders of our life. It's being rolled out in Edmonton at the present moment. The nearest uh, towns and municipalities to us that have been approved, and I guess we'll be putting this in place, are Annapolis County, Annapolis Royal, Digby Municipality, and uh, Digby. So that's a pretty significant um, that's a pretty significant change in the way people do things, and surprisingly, um, very few people seem to know anything about this. So picking up on uh, Mayor Snow's comment, staying ahead of the curve, I think this is something that's really really important to stay ahead of the curve on, and picking up on Jeff Matart's comment. A public hearing is a very useful tool. Um, uh, my strong recommendation is that the town of Kentville inform itself thoroughly about these 15-minute cities, the smart technologies, and, um, and implement some sort of a, a format whereby um, the participation and input of the community can be engaged. And um, to that end, I've brought, um, for your reading pleasure, if I can, can I just leave them on the table there, one each? Um, it's, an, it's a national newspaper and uh, some information on the World Economic Forum's ESG goals. Okay, thank you. Here's the last one on it. In minute city. That's the most popular question I'm getting. You're hearing about it all over the world, in the news everywhere. We know it came from the World Economic Forum. Well, what do they say it is, and what is it really? First, what do they say it is? A 15-minute city is the wonderful way of the future, where everything you need is with a 15-minute walk or bike ride from your home. Your cities that you live in right now will be broken up into 15-minute districts. Isn't that amazing? These are like five square kilometer areas. And where did they get this idea from? Remember when you were on lockdown and they said you can't go more than five kilometers away from your house? They were trying to get you used to the idea of a 15-minute city because that's exactly what it's going to be. You're going to never leave your 15-minute district and 15 minutes walking or biking distance not driving because you won't have a car, you won't be allowed to drive. They're going to use the idea that these districts are pedestrian only to literally eliminate car usage for everyone but the elites in these cities. And then once they have you in a 15-minute city, they basically have you on lockdown. You're going to eat, work, go to the gym, get your hair done, grocery shopping, clothing uh, shopping, do all your hanging out at bars and clubs all within your district. And they're gonna tout this as the way forward to, to make things more diverse and inclusive and equitable for all. In reality, 
They're literally taking away your rights and freedoms right before your eyes. And once you give into these 15-minute districts, guess what? There's not just going to be electronic barricades that monitor you with cameras, monitor license plates, monitor everything to see where you're going. Eventually, there will be actual checkpoints between these districts. So think how easy it's going to be to lock people down when they have cameras, electronic checkpoints, all with five square kilometer radiuses within these major cities. It gets better. What do you think is going to happen when you go to a digital ID? Guess what? Now every single thing you're doing is tracked, traced, and controlled. And get what they're going to track the most. They're going to start talking about these 15-minute cities as a way to reduce your so-called carbon footprint. They can fly on private jets, but you driving a car more than five kilometers away from your home or within the city is bad, and you're a bad person. So now what you're going to see is they're going to try to get you on the scheme of tracking your carbon footprint. And they already have credit cards offering you this service, service to track how bad you are a polluter. It gets better. They also have now these ratings on food about how much carbon your food is. And guess what the number one carbon polluter is? It's beef. And that's why they want to replace it with bugs, you know. Pretty much. <clears throat> and people who are for this are not thinking straight. All right. You won't be allowed to eat meat. This is very important for your diet. You'll also be told, you know, a certain amount of clothes you could wear. All right. They're preparing you for incarceration. To save the environment. And that's why these 15 minute cities are not just about killing your carbon footprint. It's about smallening your footprint in general because you're not going to be traveling. There's, and Oh, you want to travel internationally? Go to Google Flights right now and you can see a new feature. Every single flight tells you how much carbon emissions it will be. In fact, you can now even sort your flights by which one is the most carbon efficient. Forget duration, forget price, forget if it has connections or not. We're going to go by which one has the smallest carbon footprint. And why do they want to get you, you used to the idea that it's a good, you're a good citizen if you track your own carbon footprint? Because guess what? Once they have a whole bunch of people, the majority, tracking their carbon footprint, now they can create monthly limits and allowances. So now you won't be able to get on that plane and fly where you want because you used up your carbon for the month. Oh, you want to buy steak? Sorry, you already bought too much meat this month. Your carbon allowance won't allow it. This is what the 15-Minute Cities is all about. It's about getting you on a perpetual COVID-style lockdown with perpetual COVID-style digital ID passports, whether they're vaccine passports or climate change passports that are seeing how much carbon emissions you're using makes no difference. You're not going to be able to leave your district. You're not going to be able to travel internationally. You're not going to have a car. You're not even going to be able to intermingle with people outside of your district. You guys like that girl that's four districts over? Good luck getting there. Do you have enough carbon allowance for the month? Is your electric scooter going to make it the 30 kilometers? Will you be able to get through all those checkpoints that they're going to have set up? Answer is absolutely not. And the best part is 
the shitty areas are going to be relegated completely separate from the good areas. So when you're stuck in a shitty district, you're stuck in that district. So this is what a 15-minute city is all about. And this video needs to go viral all around the world because this isn't some conspiracy theory. Paris has already declared itself a 15-minute city. In fact, to show you how, uh, how serious they are, they're even canceling flights. Flights that are between different cities in France because they deem them too carbon taxing. So now that you can only take trains to get from that point to point B. So they're already literally canceling entire flight routes. What do you think they're going to do to the individual? Ottawa is a 15-minute city now. Edmonton declared itself a 15-minute city. London. So it's virtually every major city. And London is a, has a high crime rate. <clears throat> okay. So uh, <laughs> imagine when New York City becomes a 15-minute city. Yeah. That's, uh, that's when things are going to go if there's not already going to hell with the uh, migrant gangs. Okay. But let's get into uh, Bill Gates. All right. And what he says about people who put out uh, alternative news media. Let's talk about that now. Fair use, by the way. Bill Gates' Microsoft is now threatening to disable the computers of users who share so-called misinformation online. As Bill Gates and the WEF continue gearing up for the 2024 election season in the only way they know how, by working on an authoritarian plan to censor all opposition, criminalize so-called misinformation, steal the US election, and install puppet governments in penetrated liberal democracies all around the world. The elites know the people are rising up against them, and like cornered rats, they're now desperate to silence the opposition and crush any dissent against their totalitarian vision of a new world order. For those who are paying attention, this dystopian vision is playing out in front of our very eyes, and it's our responsibility to stop these tyrants in their tracks. Before we dive in, subscribe intent with vaccine bullish about eliminating freedom of speech on the internet well the you know the misinformation about vaccines uh and associating certain people like myself or fauci having malign intent with vaccines that was most acute in the united states but that hasn't stopped gates traveling the world on his private jet and complaining about misinformation to anybody who'll listen here he is in Australia, where he told the state-funded ABC that he was working with tech platforms to eradicate social media users who speak out against his agenda. A virulent conspiracy theory emerged during the pandemic that you were using vaccines, using the vaccine rollout to control people, even to the extent of people claiming you wanted to insert chips inside them. Now, a lot of those ideas were spread by uh, tech companies, by platforms owned by tech companies. Did you ever complain to them about those debates going on unchecked? Yeah, I mean, I think every time the question's asked, it helps spread the rumor. So, you know, maybe I, I should uh, complain even more. But I certainly uh, point out false stories when they're, they're published, or you... even people who highlight sort of 
almost silly misinformation. But did you talk to the tech companies about how those debates were being carried out? Yeah, there's a constant dialogue of anybody who gets, uh, you know, this crazy stuff published of going to uh, the digital platforms and saying, you know, hey, look at this, look at that. Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella told NBC's Lester Holt this week that people sharing misinformation should not be protected by freedom of speech laws. In his opinion, the world needs a new Geneva Convention to deal with anybody who dares to share information that exposes the global elite. That's right. The Microsoft CEO is comparing free speech on the internet with the international law that regulates armed conflict. Listen carefully to his words. The Microsoft CEO actually admits that this is part of the elite's vision of a new world order. When you uh, have an adversary who is a nation state or a country that is, you know, got institutional sort of or, you know, strength or organizations that are both well resourced and are relentless and attacking, I'm glad that we have the capability we have to even detect uh, what they're doing. I really, really hope, whether it's the US, it's about Russia or China in particular, these are the three powers who need to come together and really settle on some Geneva Convention. Because if this is about two nation states attacking each other, and especially civilian targets, then we are in a very new world uh, order. And it's a breakdown of world order, which I think we've not seen before. Bill Gates and his cronies are not just talking about clamping down on free speech. As we speak, they're quietly, deceitfully putting the dominoes in place to completely obliterate the legal rights of ordinary people to dissent against their evil agenda. After this quick break. All right. So basically we have that notion right there. I mean, I'm sorry, that information right there, that um, Bill Gates is upset <clears throat> that uh, people are waking up and they're using their platforms to uh warn about his agendas and um there's gonna come a day when we're really gonna be a fascist society and you're not gonna get the information that you're getting freely now on social media and the question is what are people going to do what are you going to do when that happens will you be prepared I can't answer that question. That's a question that only you could answer. All right. We're going to be talking about these uh, Hamas tunnels under the UN in Gaza. Let's get to that. work of tunnels that run partly under the main UN agency in Gaza, calling it new evidence of Hamas exploitation of what is known as UNRWA, the UN relief group that aids Palestinians. Israeli army engineers took reporters from foreign news outlets through the passages during what is a time of crisis for UNRWA. UN staff were among the perpetrators of the October 7 massacre. Israel last month alleged that some of the agency's staff doubled as Hamas operatives, which led several donor countries to freeze their funding to the agency. UNRWA has launched an internal investigation into Israel's claims. The tunnels under the agency's headquarters in Gaza City 
also revealed side rooms, including an office space with steel safes that had been opened and emptied. One large chamber was packed with computer servers, another with industrial battery stacks. Leading the tour was an Israeli lieutenant colonel who gave only his first name, Ido. This is the, one of the, the, the central commands of the intelligence. These, this place is the, the Hamas, one of the Hamas's intelligence units where they command most of the combat from here, but from the underground. Ido said Hamas appeared to have evacuated in the face of the Israeli advance, preemptively cutting off communications cables that, in an above-ground part of the tour, he showed running through the floor of the UNRWA basement. The Palestinians have accused Israel of falsifying information to tarnish UNRWA, which employs 13,000 people in the Gaza Strip and for years has been a lifeline for the population, running schools, health care clinics and other social services. In a statement, UNRWA said it had vacated the headquarters on October 12th, five days after the war began, and was therefore, quote, unable to confirm or otherwise comment on the Israeli finding. Hamas has denied operating in civilian facilities. As a condition of taking journalists on the trip, the Israeli military requested approval of photos and video My thing is like uh, <clears throat> you can't really trust Israel because Israel's known to tell lies and will do anything to make themselves look at the like they're the victim or they're the heroes or they're doing what they're supposed to do. Okay, that's the problem with Israel. The IDF says the underground compound was vital to Hamas activities in Gaza. The Israeli military says it just has discovered Hamas tunnel and has a secret data center underneath the evacuated headquarters of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, UNRWA, in Gaza City. According to the Israeli Defense Forces, a shaft leading to the underground terror tunnel was located near a UN-sponsored school. The tunnel has half a mile long, was a half a mile long, 60 feet deep, passing under the building that serves as UNRWA's main headquarters in the Gaza Strip. The IDF said in a statement on Saturday, the underground compound serves as a significant asset of Hamas military intelligence. The IDF said, adding that the UNRWA facilities supplied the tunnel with electricity. The Israeli army also claimed the large quantities of weapons, including rifles and grenades, were found at the agency's main office. UNRWA's commissioner, um, <clears throat> Commissioner General Filippi Lazzarini responded to the claims by saying the agency did not know what is head under its headquarters in Gaza. He added that the UN staff was evacuated on October 12th and that he is unable to confirm or otherwise comment on the allegations made by Israel. UNRWA is a human development and humanitarian organization that does not have military and security expertise, nor the capacity to undertake military inspections of what is or might be under its premises. Lajani wrote on X, formerly as Twitter, Israeli Foreign Minister <clears throat> Israel Katz rejected Lazarin's explanation as an affront to common sense and urged for his prompt resignation. The UN agency tasked with, tasked with assigning Palestinians in Gaza has been under scrutiny in recent weeks after Israel accused several of its employees of helping Hamas carry out its deadly October 7th attack on Israeli cities. The UN has fired nine staffers and launched an investigation into the matter. The allegations prompted multiple countries, including the US and UK, to suspend funding 
of the UNRWA. The UN has called for a ceasefire in Gaza, warning that the Israeli operation is creating a humanitarian catastrophe in Palestine enclave. The Jewish state has said it is doing everything it can to minimize the civilian death toll and has accused Hamas of using civilians as human shields. Let's take a look at this. This goes now 20 meters deep. We had a walk of uh, approximately 400 meters uh, at the depth of uh, 20 meters. So I really don't know who to believe. I mean, I'm sorry with Israel, I will look at a side eye, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, <clears throat> UNRWA is helping Hamas. That's another thing too. All right. Moving on, we're going to talk about this fatal gas explosion in Nairobi. people have been killed and hundreds injured in a giant explosion in Kenya. It happened at a gas plant in the capital, Nairobi, where, which authorities say had been operating illegally. The blast sparked fires which spread quickly, destroying nearby homes and businesses and forcing locals to evacuate. DW's Mariel Muller has this report from Nairobi. A massive blast rips through a residential area of Nairobi in the middle of the night. We are entering the scene where the huge explosion took place. The whole devastation of this huge explosion that was caused by a lorry that was filled with liquid petroleum gas. And the government put out a statement saying that that was what caused the fireball that also reached some flats, some small businesses. People were absolutely terrified uh, when they woke up around midnight. They said the ground was shaking and uh, many tried to escape and they got burned in the process. Jacqueline Karimi had no idea what had happened. Even I was unconscious, then I had a bang, I had that gas exposed and the gas entered in my nose. I slept flat. I still comforted myself. I stood and ran, ran and ran. So when I, I reached around the boundary there, is when I realized I was burnt. Jacqueline was not immediately treated at the nearest hospital. At first, they were turning accident victims away. 
Many of the injured were transported to nearby hospitals where they are receiving treatment right now. And the government pledged that they will financially support those who got injured, but also those who lost everything, their homes, their businesses. Wekeza Musima is one of those who lost his home in the fire. Luckily, he was away when it happened. Like many people in this neighborhood, he works odd jobs, earning just enough to survive and send some money to his family. I'll need the government's help, but there's so much corruption in Kenya. The government may provide help, but it won't get to me. Deputy President Rigadi Gashagwa arrives at the scene, promising blankets, food and a thorough investigation. He suggests the disaster happened because people have been stealing and illegally reselling gas at the site. This has been happening here for so long. People used to come with their motorbikes laden with cylinders. They'd fill them up with gas and leave. Authorities say this densely populated area should have never been used for gas transactions. The petroleum regulator confirmed the explosion happened at an illegal gas storage. And there you go. There you go, cutting corners. The African government not willing to help. And these type of situations do happen. All right, so last one. We're going to be talking about Fannie Willis. And uh, it gets worse. It really does get worse for her. Let's get into it. Second, yep, here we go. Privately warned in battle, Georgia DA Fonnie Willis that her top aide was abusing federal funds. One second, I'm gonna play a little back, play it back. Here we go, play it. Oh, here we go. Warned in battle, Georgia DA Fonnie Willis, that her top aide was abusing federal funds. Now, in the audio, Willis appears to agree with this whistleblower and say that she'd look into it. Yet a little less than two months later, the staffer who raised the concerns was fired. Let's take a listen to that audio. He told everybody in front of Crystal, Deontay, everybody, we're going to get MacBooks, we're going to do that, we're going to get swag, we're going to use it for travel. I said, you cannot do that. It's a very, very specific grant. Took me off. I questioned Junior DA. There's kids in there from out of the, the, um, the county, all this. Took me off Junior DA. I did not want to do it. He made it look as if I wasn't doing what I needed to do because I questioned him. Because so, I knew for a fact Mr. Cutfee respectfully did not know what he was doing, so, period. So I respect that is your assessment. Um, it was clear to me that you and Mr. Cuffey were not getting along. And I'm not saying that your assessment is wrong. I want you to really listen to the words I'm saying. Cuffey, and this is my personal opinion to one woman to another, is dangerous to your administration. Yeah, so the implication here is that this whistleblower came forward about another employee who wanted to misuse grant funds. And after coming forward in that kind of, you know, nervous, heated, excited way that we just heard, she was the one that was ultimately fired. Now, you also did hear Fannie Willis say, I know that you guys have been having trouble at work. So this is a snippet of a broader circumstance. Stance. Who right. knows? There's other reasons that people could be fired. Sometimes people are substantively on the right, but there are employment problems that 
Absolutely. Out, outstrip the conflict at issue here. Who knows? Absolutely. We should proceed cautiously. This, so this whistleblower who was fired um, spoke to the Free Beacon, Washington Free Beacon, and provided this audio. But I have to say, what's alleged in here is extremely serious. Um, what the whistleblower says is that this grant, and the whistleblower worked uh, doing, uh, in the DA, in Fonnie Wilson's office, doing work with um, nonviolent juvenile offenders. Um, you know, this is important work. Um, that they received a grant from the federal government earmarked for the creation of a center of youth empowerment and gang prevention. Again, that sounds like a very worthy cause for public funding. And and what she says is that this other employee, Michael Cuffey, wanted to use it to purchase swag, computers, and travel um, to you know misuse funds for the greater enjoyment of the office. And she went to Fonnie Wills and said, he can't do that. That's not what, what it's for. This is exactly what we want. This is what everyone wants. When there's misuse of public funding for government employees to speak up and report it and say something about it. That's what we all want. So good for her for doing that. Um, and Fonnie Wills there is trying to you know, put her, calm her down. It, it's clear this was a, you know, a difficult workplace that she didn't get along with the person. Fonnie Wills tries to calm her down, and then we don't know what happens, but she lets her go two months later. Um, a very serious accusation that we would need to learn more about. I can't believe she would do something like this. You don't fire somebody who's actually do, looking out for your company. And on top of that, you are involved with a man who has no experience in handling high profile cases and you put him into the public to handle something like this and everything comes out in the wash now. Obviously, we need to hear the other side of the story, but um, I'm glad this person has come forward because, frankly, it, independent of the Trump case, it really doesn't have anything to do with the it Trump case. It could Trump speak, case. you know, further to. Don't have anything to do with the Trump case, but it does show a light on her character. Just Fannie Willis's judgment. Obviously, she's involved in this um, other um, uh, national story about uh, whether she similarly misappropriate, whether she herself misappropriated public funds by um, by hiring her uh, her lover at the time, who's now uh, divorcing his wife, and it, they are a couple, it seems to be, and then that he—not that hiring him was necessarily wrong, but then he took her on trips, so it was in some indirect way a kickback, um, and that's all coming out through his own, this Nathan Wade, his uh, divorce um, action going on. Right. So, again, the reason this is a national story at all uh, is because there has been a political effort. I don't—that's not a value judgment. I think that's just yeah. descriptive. A political effort to undermine the Georgia case against Donald Trump by having increased scrutiny at Fonnie Willis, and it's dug up now both the allegation that she— hired her lover who was underqualified to do the work and overpaid to do the work uh, in this kind of a uh, soft, you know, kind of a kickback scheme. And now also that she may have retaliated against a whistleblower. Again, unsubstantiated at this point. We don't know if the other person that was whistleblown on was also fired. Maybe there was a lot of discord in the office and people had to be fired for interpersonal reasons. We really don't know. But that does seem to be the implication. But in, in a lot of ways, I don't know. We don't need this story. To know that Fonnie Willis has already demonstrated bad judgment yeah. in the context of um, yeah. adjudicating Donald Trump's if case. If this is true, in some ways, this is worse. 
It's not said worth it. It's very bad. But the point is that Fannie Willis, even if it was just mere optics, there was an interesting write-up in, in Politico a few days ago, um, written by Ankush uh, Karadari, and they made the argument that you know having a relationship isn't illegal. Even having a relationship with someone that you're working with, even if it's cheating, they're cheating on their spouse. None of those things are illegal, whatever you think the ethical implications of them are. Um, but the question is whether or not he, she, he was overpaid and whether or not he was hired when otherwise he wouldn't have been hired because right. it inured to the personal benefit of Fonnie Willis, which, again, I think the problem is, is the problem here is our ethics and our morals are in the toilet. That's that's the issue here, because back in the day, if you were caught with another person's spouse, if it was, you know, a relationship information came out that you were in a relationship with someone else's spouse on the job. You both work there. Both of you could be gone. Okay. And you know what? It kept the reputation of the company out of situations like this. That's what people don't understand. I mean, even years before that, if you were caught, you know, cheating if it was found out that you were cheating on your wife a man could be fired for that georgia legislators reveal whistleblowers are pushing to testify against fulton county district attorney fanny willis as lawmakers launch their investigation into misconduct allegations against the embedded the embattled prosecutor republican georgia state senator bill Cossert kicked off a state state senate special committee on investigations meeting Friday by revealing that multiple employees from the DA's office are eager to testify against their boss, who is prosecuting former President Donald Trump for election interference. The, the Peach State lawmaker, however, insists the probe has zero political motivations. This is not a political witch hunt. This is a request for the truth, Cosford said during the meeting per Fox 5 Atlanta. Cosford said that the whistleblowers claim Willis has misused state and federal funds, echoing bombshell allegations in the court papers filed by Trump co-defendant Michael Roman in January. Roman claimed that Willis had engaged in an improper relationship with special prosecutor Nathan Wade, whom she hired to work on the Trump case and for which he was paid 654000 in 2022. He alleged Wade used some of his earnings to splurge lavish gifts and vacations with his boss and the that the conflict of interest should disqualify Willis Wade and the district attorney's office from prosecuting the former president's election interference case. Willis recently admitted to having a personal relationship with Wade, but insisted there were zero grounds for tossing the Trump case because she insisted the pair didn't strike up a romantic relationship until 2022, long after she hired him as lead prosecutor in 2021. In filing Friday, however, Roman's attorney claimed Wade's former law partner, Terrence Bradley, would prove Willis was lying and that the pair's romantic relationship began before she hired him in 2021. Willis has called Roman's allegations salacious and said they garnered the media attention they were designed to obtain. There you have it, man. There you have it. Just a whole hot mess right here. Well... That's it for now, and uh, see you on the next one. Anything you want to know about the channel in the description box, share, like, comment, and subscribe. Let's have a discussion in the comment section. 
What do you think about these uh, current events stories? Later.